Welcome to the How to Health podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'd love to interview. I'm lucky to interview Dr. Neil Bernard. How are you doing today, Dr. Bernard? I'm doing fine. It's good to talk with you. Good to see you too. And um, we've known each other for a while. And it's just such a delight every time I get to to speak to you. But I just want to give you a little intro. So, Dr. Bernard is the president and founder of the nonprofit Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and the Bernard Medical Center, which is amazing. He's the author of 19 books, including New York Times bestsellers "Power Feeds for the Brain" and the 21 Day Kickstart, or excuse me, Weight Loss Kickstart, and on the USA Today bestseller, um, the Program for diabetes. He has had four PBS specials. He's um, a fellow of the American College of Cardiology. He's an adjunct associate professor at the medicine of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine. I mean, and it goes on and on. So, but he has a, most recently he has a new book called The Cheese Trap, which we're going to talk about and all this lovely stuff. And the AMA um, has some interesting stuff we're going to talk about as well. So yep. where would you like to get started? Uh, why don't we talk about cheese? Let's talk cheese. I'm all about it. <laughs> America's favorite addiction. Oh. Uh, anyway, uh, this is the weirdest thing I got to tell you. Um, the, the, re- the story really starts for me back in 2003. That's when NIH gave us a grant to test vegan diets for type 2 diabetes. We'd, we've been doing some studies up until that point showing that uh, a, a, a low fat, completely plant based diet is likely to help with weight loss and reducing cholesterol and everything, and specifically diabetes. So um, we did a randomized trial. People on the plant-based diet did great. You know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. They lost weight and their cholesterol fell and their blood sugars came down and their need for medication came down. Everything was great. However, I kept hearing some people say, Dr. Barnard, I feel great, ex- except sometimes I really just miss cheese. And not ice, it wasn't ice cream. It wasn't yogurt it, it, it wasn't even a burger for the most part. It was cheese, specifically cheese. I thought, what is this? It, it smells like old socks. Why do they want cheese so much? Um, and so I started out to try to figure out, A, um, was there something about them? And B, is there something about cheese? And the answer is yes to both. Mm-hmm. So can I, can I launch into both of those with oh, you? Oh, please. Take it away. I All love right. it. Okay, the first thing that, that, that is going to surprise you a little bit, because I don't think you and I have talked about this part of it, I genotyped everybody in that study. And what, oh. what I was looking for is there is a gene that causes you to have too little dopamine activity. Specifically, if you, if you have this allele, um, you have fewer dopamine receptors. And the, the reason that I did this, I didn't discover the gene. Um, we already knew that there was, there was a gene that would cause you to reduce dopamine activity and that leads people to get involved in drugs. Uh, and, and other things that, that trigger dopamine, uh, compulsive gambling, smoking, these, all of these illicit dopamine, and they're all more common in these people. So I started thinking, all right, listen, if you're in my study and food is calling out to you like a drug, maybe it is a drug. So I genotype my people. And, and here's, here's what I found out. I, first of all, we found out that 49% of our people with type 2 diabetes, that's the only reason they were in the study, 49% of them had this exact single gene, which blew me away. So what we started to think, first of all, is, okay, I'm born with that gene, and that causes me to overeat, especially junk food, to get my dopamine, which is what happens, or to smoke or to take drugs or whatever, but the, the food is the part we were focusing on. So then what happens? I gain weight because I'm getting the dopamine from the food, and if I'm gaining weight and I also happen to have genetic loading for type 2 diabetes, what happens? Wow. I'm diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. But it starts out with a dopamine 
deficit gene. That's the first thing. So, so yes, the, the, there is something about these people that causes them to have this hunger um, for, for, for a dopaminergic activity. The second thing is, what about that cheese? Mm-hmm. And it's, cheese has several interesting characteristics that separate it from everything else. The first thing is it's very salty. Uh, to give you some numbers, two ounces of potato chips have 330 milligrams of sodium. Two ounces of cheddar have 350. Two ounces of Velveeta have 800. So it's very salty. And it's also fatty, 70% fat. So the salty-fatty combination lures us to onion rings and potato chips and, and French fries and cheese. But the other thing is there are actually opiates in cheese uh, made from the casein protein concentrated in the cheese. And these are, these are opiates. They're narcotics. They go to the mu receptor of the brain. They attach. They're not as strong as morphine. The strongest of these casomorphins in the cheese has about one-tenth the receptor binding power compared to pure morphine. So it's not, enough to, it's not enough to get you arrested, but it is enough to make you buy the Velveeta or the cheddar or the Munster and to rave about how fabulous it is, even if it stinks. Um, and so to come back where we started, why do people who are getting healthier have these cravings? Um, my belief is that in some cases they are set up for cravings based on a genetic tendency, but not, not everybody, but for some people. Um, you can be genetically normal and still have cravings, obviously. But the other thing is there are certain foods that feed into that. Nobody ever binged on strawberries. You know, oh, I I ate the whole bushel, you know. No. Um, Apples, oranges, you know, it's a hot day. You know, I like an apple, but I'm not going to eat eight of them. Oh, do I feel guilty? I'm going to hide the apples I ate. No, that doesn't happen. But the addictive activity does happen with cheese, with chocolate, with alcohol, with certain things, because all of those trigger dope. So forgive me for that long-winded answer, but, but that's kind of how the whole cheese uh, story began for us. It's amazing. I mean, I understood the addictive qualities because it took me three months to quit craving cheese. Ah. But even, I might have been one of those people, actually. Um, that's fascinating. There's so many ramifications for that. I mean, are they at a higher risk for depression as well? Do you, are you, no? Yeah. yeah well, for, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's the idea is if you actually could look at the membrane, the neuronal membrane, they have about a 30% deficit in the normal complement of dopaminergic receptors. So as you remember, the dopamine vesicles open up, the little dopamine swims across the cleft, and if it doesn't find a receptor really fast, it dissipates, it's gone. So the dopamine activity is fast. Um, If you have 30% fewer receptors, which is what they have, they just don't get the dopamine that others have. And, so, and yes, what you said is right. They, 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 you got a cloud over your head all the time until you light up a cigarette and you feel better. Mm. You have a drink. You feel better. You go to Atlantic City and you plunk down 200 bucks on the blackjack table and you win, you lose, you win, you lose, you win. You, you feel better because these are all dopamine-inducing activities. Um, uh, so anyhow, uh, I can slather cheese all over my pizza and salt and other things. And these will stimulate that same neural chemistry too. Wow. I mean, I remember as a kid, I would take blocks of cheese, like just cut, I just eat the salt, the fat. I mean, it just was so like, uh, it was so good. Oh man. And then you have that melting quality. Wow. Yeah. No, you're not alone. Um, the U S government 
is well aware of this. And at the risk of sounding a little paranoid, um, we do that. <laughs> Although nowadays, what can I say? Anyway, <laughs> you, you just accept anyway, it. <laughs> we, we, we have looked into the government's complicity in this. As, as you know, the dairy industry is politically active. And so they've got the government supporting them in various ways. And by law, the U.S. government has set up a checkoff program that promotes dairy products. Part of that money went, I'm not making this up, for a program called the Cheese Forum, where the U.S. government set out to figure out how you could trigger cheese craving. And I, I can show you the slides that we got from the Freedom of Information Act on this activity. And it's the most amazing thing. They, they said, we are going to separate Americans into two categories. The, the, first of all, the, the enhancer category are people who just enhance their salad with a little cheese. And they realize those people are kind of unreachable. The craver category is what you just described. I open the refrigerator, I grab the cheese, I stuff it in my mouth. That's a cheese craver. Those are the people, they, they track their ages, their general demographics, and they then set out, the, the U.S. government working on contract with Dairy, Dairy Management Inc. back in 2000, set out to figure out how you could trigger cheese craving. And the way they decided they would do it was not with TV commercials and things. The way they did it was by contracting with fast food chains to make sure that cheese was extra prominent on their menus and easily selectable. So they worked with Wendy's to market the Cheddar Lovers Bacon Cheeseburger that sold, this was a government, US government project, sold two and a quarter million pounds of cheese. They worked with Subway, with Taco Bell. Um, uh, pizza Hut had the ultimate cheese pizza, of one pound of cheese on one serving. Um, so th th the point I'm making is that we, we think, why are people uh, obese? Oh, they're having too many sodas. Let me tell you something. Um, the average American's cheese intake has specifically been pushed by smart industry working with a complicit government by law. And the average American now consumes 65,000 calories of cheese every year. Oh. Um, can, can you imagine what would happen if you just left that cheese off? You know, a, a 65,000 calorie deficit is going to help you lose weight. So, wow. Anyway, so when I started discovering these things, I was blown away by it. And so I wrote The Cheese Trap to talk about the addictive qualities, the governmental complicity, and, and also some pretty bang up good recipes to help. Uh, that, that's my cheese methadone to help drag you away from whatever your addiction might be. So now there's some studies like with um, Narcan, right? Like the drug for opioid stuff. Yeah. That they've actually shown that you don't have the cravings for things but for the food. Granted, it's yeah. a short period of time when you use that opiate blocker type thing right. antagonist that is fascinating i would love to see those slides after the show yeah, well, I, I, not not only can i send you those slides i can send you the wendy's contract what yeah. i would love that please well, no, we, we have all these things and it's it i have to say it's to me it's fascinating now but when i first found it i was discouraged i, I thought how can this be because you, you you and i and every other doctor is worried when we see people who are food addicted and you see people trying to addict them and you see what's going on on TV and you worry about when you see kids, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 uh, years of age going down an unhealthy path, that's bad. But to discover that your own government is actually trying to make this happen and turning a blind eye to the fat, to the cholesterol, to the calories, um, not to mention the environmental cons consequences, the animal welfare consequences, all these other things. But uh, we're, there, there's no sign of this stopping. Um, sugar consumption has, has been falling 
Since 1999, sugar is dropping. By 1999 was when bottled water started edging out soda enough that's, that soda and sugar consumption fell. But cheese, uh-uh. It's going up and up and up and up and up. And um, so now I hope I haven't made everyone feel totally discouraged, but uh, I, I wanted to, um, to raise the alarm about this. And you sh- as you should. I mean, but you know what I found, though, is when I work with patients and I tell them kind of like the big food and the food scientists and how they find the bliss point and, you know, they're literally right. messing with our chem- the biochemical stuff in our head to create that craving. I mean, this is just one more thing. They get really angry. And it actually is almost stoking them to stick with the diet even more, the, help, you know, the whole food plant-based diet, because they're like, who are these people to manipulate me and make me sick? I mean, this is just disturbing. They get so upset. And um, it's incredible. So do you feel like the, the vegan cheeses are a good substitute for someone, you know, transferring the, what would you tell someone who has this really serious cheese addiction? <laughs> and it really is. It's like, you think about it, you salivate when you think about it. What would you tell someone? What's a good way to yeah. move away? Uh, uh, step one, I think is to get informed about what it's doing in your body. Because some people have mistaken ideas like, well, it's got protein, it's got calcium, so it's on balance good for me. And I always remind people that asphalt has calcium in it, but that doesn't mean it's good for you. Um, there's a lot of bad stuff in there too. So, And hopefully we can come back to that because some of those things are important. But then what I encourage people to do is to focus only on the short term, not for the rest of my life. I'm never going to have another, you name it. Focus just on the short term. And if you do that, we can adhere to a little more far-reaching diet than we might otherwise. Um, so, uh, for example, if I have a person where they really want to lose weight, they got diabetes, things are not good, what I'll do is I'll do a four-week kind of partnership. And week one is no diet change at all. Week one is um, let's think about foods that we like that are completely vegan. I mean, no animal products, but also pretty low in fat, too. And I, just identify them. So I'll say, give me breakfast, lunches, and dinners. And they come, they got a week to figure it out. They come back a week later and the breakfast category says oatmeal with cinnamon, raisins, fine. The lunch category is um, a veggie burger or a bean burrito, whole cheese, and dinner is spaghetti with tomato sauce. And they got their list. So then the next three weeks, I say all vegan all the time, but only three weeks. Okay, I can do it. And then we're in touch every week along the way and they're on the scale, which is really important. Um, if you know that I'm going to weigh you on Wednesday, you're going to eat better on Saturday and Sunday. And so you get weight every week, and, but there's no commitment beyond three weeks. At the end of three weeks, you've seen this. Um, two things have happened. They're physically healthier. Their blood sugar is down. They, they may have needed a medication reduction if they're diabetic because of high, they've been hypoglycemic. You know, it's, the, 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 the food changes really affect them quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, their blood pressure starts to come down a little bit. You've, you've seen these changes. But the other thing is, is they start to view foods differently. They'll say, that wasn't so hard. Um, I'm going to do this for another week. I mean, let me see how I can go. This is the easiest diet I ever did. Let me see how I can go. Um, except for the ones who craze cheese. And then they got to read my books. <laughs> that is fabulous. And I'll put a link for the book. Where should they buy your book? Should they go through your website or Amazon? What's the best way to, to buy The Cheese Trap? Well, you can, well, first of all, you can go to your public library um, and they might okay. have it there and you can check it out. If, if it's already checked out, they got to get another one, but it's also, you'll find it on anywhere books are sold. It's on Amazon and, and everywhere okay. else. And so have a, have a look. Um, but I do have a tip, give it to yeah. somebody else. And when you give them the book, what you have to do is don't just give them a book, 
Because if you do, you'll go to their house three months later and the book will be sitting on the coffee table in the very same place you left it. You can tell that the book has not been read. So what you got to do is take the book before you give it to them, put a post-it on the page 137 and another post-it on page 192 and another one on one of the recipes. And in the front, you write a little post-it note, on, stick it on the front of the book and say, Susan, I thought about you when I read page 137 and it just grabbed me. And, and this was you I was thinking of. It doesn't matter what it was. They are going to open that book up and they're going to start reading. And pretty soon they'll get hooked and they'll start reading more and more and more. And this works with DVDs too. You give them a copy of Forks Over Knives. You say, mom, put a post-it note. Mom, at 45 minutes into this movie, that was you talking to me. Oh, cut off. I love you, mom. And she's going to be on the player. And she's going to get to 45 minutes. She's going to watch it six or eight times trying to figure out what you're thinking of. There you go. So that's, that is, my way, that's my way to get people to actually pay attention to the propaganda that we are providing them. <laughs> I love this so much. That is fabulous. <laughs> this is psychology 101. I love it. It works every time. People cannot resist it. And it can also be, it can, listen, it can also be true. You know, right. you, might, you, might you, will find, you will find, you will see your family in there. So it's, <laughs> that's it's, why it's I love our conversations. I'm always laughing and learning. I mean, every single time I'm, I never walk away empty handed. Oh my goodness. That's fabulous. So is there, um, <laughs> I love that. So the, besides the, um, you know, you're talking about the industry and the, the cheese addicts. Is there anything else in that book that you feel that, we should really be honed in on when we're reading it and really look into? Yeah. Um, one of the things that really surprised me, and I don't know where we're going with this, but let me share this with you. Um, cows produce milk only when they have been pregnant and gave birth, obviously, in fundamental biology. You know, the, the animal has to have been pregnant and has to have given birth. Um, to keep milk production up, the cows are impregnated annually. And a cow gestation is about nine months. So they're pregnant nine months out of every 12. Here's why I'm telling you this. The milk that people drink is mostly from pregnant cows. The closer they get to term, the more estradiol gets into their milk. And it's only traces. However, researchers went into a fertility clinic in Rochester, New York, and they looked at sperm quality, sperm count, and sperm morphology in different men. And they showed that the more cheese the men ate, the, the worse all of these indicators were. Um, in other words, sperm counts are lower among the high cheese eating men. And that raised the following theory. Despite the fact that it's only traces of estrogens in milk, could it be that since milk turning into cheese, the, the, the fat content is greatly increased and the hormones go with the fat and your average man is eating about 35 pounds of it every year, could that be affecting them? Who knows? What got me worried was parallel research on women uh, in California, women who had previously been treated for breast cancer. And what they found is that those women who consume the most high fat dairy products, butter, cheese, uh, whole milk perhaps, those women, all the women had had breast cancer. They were all hoping it never comes back. The mortality risk was 49% higher in the high uh, cheese consuming group compared to the low cheese consuming group. And the difference was just 
those women consuming less than half a serving of cheese per day, those consuming one or more. Uh, if you conserve one or more, your risk of dying of your cancer was 49% higher than the other group. So we don't know what to make of this, but the theory that this is launching is basically the maybe we were wrong idea that everyone has said, yeah, cows are pregnant. Yes, they have estrogen. Yes, it's in their plasma. Yes, it goes into the milk, but it doesn't matter. It can't affect you because you're making estrogen anyway. And the amount you make is so big compared to the tiny amount you're getting in cheese. We thought it couldn't possibly matter, but the more we're looking at it, the more we're seeing that it does have biological effects, which leads you to think, um, could it be some kind of active transport system? Is it all just a weird coincidence? I don't know. But for my money, while we're sorting this out, if you've got a six-year-old daughter mm -hmm. and you're looking at what should be on that pizza or what should be in your sandwich, do you really want to spread this? Do you want to put dairy products on it knowing where it came from? You've got a 16-year-old son. Do you want them to consume this? Or you have a spouse mm -hmm. that you're concerned about. Um, in the past, a lot of people say, well, it's soy. Doesn't soy have hormones in it? Soy products reduce breast cancer risk. And they also reduce breast cancer recurrence uh, in cancer patients by roughly 30%. With dairy, it's the opposite. So anyway, um, that part blew me away. I don't know where the science is going, but when I wrote The Cheese Trap, I wanted people to know where the science is so that they can make decisions for themselves. That's incredible. I mean, that should be handed out in every oncologist's office. Like, I mean... Yes, it should be. So that gets us to the question. I mean, it just blows my mind. Once you learn this as a physician, how you can't not share it. Like it just irritates me to no end when you can present all of this to a physician and they just shun, you know, any thought. Why do you think that is? Why do you think physicians are so resistant? Some of them anyway. And why isn't this been mainstreamed and why isn't this shared and why can't we move this forward? It's going to be mainstream, and, and we're, we're, we're already seeing movement in this direction already. Um, but to first answer your question, why not? Because it's not the standard practice. Um, imagine this. A patient has uh, pneumonia. They come in, and it's a, you know it's, let's say you know it's a bacterial pneumonia, and they leave your office, and you never once mentioned antibiotics. Um, you would be in court so fast mm -hmm. because if you don't treat them with antibiotics, they're going to die. Um, and that's the standard of practice. A person comes in with a diet-related disease like type 2 diabetes and obesity or hypercholesterolemia or whatever the case may be, and they can leave your office and you have done nothing but give them a prescription and you're never going to go to court because it's not the standard of practice. In my view, um, it's indefensible because take my, just my own work to give one example. I was funded by the National Institutes of Health to do a head-to-head -head trial of a plant-based diet and an ADA diet for type 2 diabetes. The results were published by the American Diabetes Association um, in 2006, and again in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. They've been presented over and over again. Um, they've been presented at medical conferences, and a lot of doctors are now paying attention, but many of them are not. And so far, they can get away with it. But here's why I think they're not going to be able to continue getting away with it. First thing, there are lots and lots of doctors moving in this direction right now. There are so many who realize the power of food and specifically about plant-based diets. Secondly, three weeks ago, the AMA uh, jumped in in a really interesting way. The American Medical Association basically got, if I, if I can say this, um, 
you know how the, the legendary case, the patient had a heart attack, they wake up in the hospital the next day and they're served bacon and eggs and sausage and all this stuff. And the, uh, the irony is not lost on everybody. The AMA passed a resolution uh, by their House of Delegates in June saying that hospitals should offer to every patient plant-based meals, not just the heart patients, but everybody. Um, now they can offer other stuff too, but these have to be there and that the bacon has to be off the menu and out of the hospital. The sausage has got to be out, the ham, the bologna, the hot dogs, all those processed meats gone. Why do they do that? Because two years ago, the World Health, or Health Organization said cigarettes cause lung cancer, processed meats cause colorectal cancer. That's 50,000 people dead every year. The AMA said, stop it. So the American Medical Association has not been, for the most part, on the forefront of nutritional activism, but more and more they are taking a strong stand uh, that's a good stand for patients. And when they do that, that backs up you and me and the doctors who are talking to our dietary service saying, help me out. Right. Um, now you've got the AMA saying, absolutely, get that junk off that patient tray. So um, I now think we are going to be very soon with all those processed meats where we were with tobacco a generation ago, where you might be a smoker, but you do not expect to be able to light up in your hospital. There was a big battle about it, but that's where we are. And pretty soon, you're going to expect not to see that stuff in a hospital. And the doctors are going to be engaged in that conversation. The patients are going to demand it. The insurers are going to say, help us out here. Let's talk about food. Uh, if nothing else does this, the battle over healthcare has to do it. Um, because how much money are we spending for medications and doctor visits that we should not need to have? We're, we're not going to be out of business but we should not be busy like we are. Right. And, and if people eat in a healthier way, we'll turn medicine back to what it was. Sniffles and infections and trauma and childbirth and not so much self-inflicted problems from, from dietary indiscretions. So that's, wow. So how powerful is the AMA? Is this like a, like laws that they have to abide by? Is like every hospital must do this now? Or is that, no. this no. is just... No, the, okay. the, the, hospital, the hospitals don't have to do it. They can, they can thumb their nose at this if they wish to. Hmm. But it gets really, really hard because now you have to, a doc, all, all that has to happen, the doctors go into the CEO. And they, many of them have wanted to make this change anyway. And many of the dietary services have wanted to make this change. The reason they haven't is they're afraid of the patient. They're afraid of that patient who says, wait a minute, I expect to have the same food I eat at home. And, and now what they can say they can say is the AMA won't let us serve those foods mm. or the AMA has advised against it, or we love you too much to serve the foods that the AMA has determined. So it gives them cover for providing what they, the healthy foods that they've wanted to provide all along. So wow. no, it's not a case of law, but it's strong. It's like blaming someone without having to take that. That's great. That's yeah. I love uh, it. The American college of cardiology has been terrific on this too. The American college of cardiology went one step further. They said, don't just provide, plant-based meals for hospital patients, but promote them. In other words, you're supposed to be sitting down with the patient and say, you're getting the menu tomorrow morning, you pick whatever you want, but here's the, what, what I want you to get. Wow. And, and yeah, so wow. the world's changing. It's changing in a good way. That's, that is such good news. That's yeah. fabulous. Wow. So as far as the individual physician, so now you have this AMA recommendation. Um, how does that disseminate into the doctor in his office, the doctor making this, you know, 
encouraging that conversation in the hospital. I mean, where, cause there seems to be, I think some disconnect a little bit. I mean, they may have passed, but I'm not, I mean, I don't know what the AMA passes. I mean, they're not sending out letters saying, Oh, by the way. So how does that get into the actual practice of medicine for a doctor? What would you suggest? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, we are starting here. We have a conference coming up here in Washington, July 28th and 29th. Just when Washington is at its most sweltering, that's when we have our conference about six blocks from the White House at the higher, the Grand Hyatt. Sorry about the lightning. I can hear it. Yes, there's somebody else who wants to attend um, <laughs> uh, because they know how good it's going to be. So at the conference, we're, we're going to be talking about this and we actually have toolkits for people. And at the Physician oh. Committee website, we have a hospital toolkit as well. So it has everything you need. It has, here's, here's the text you give to your CEO Here's the text the CEO can disseminate to all the healthcare providers to say, here's why we're doing it. We have um, meal plans and recipes that can be used, and we are now actively working with hospitals for them to test it out. And I got to tell you, the hospitals are not resistant about plant-based meals because they, they've needed to offer them anyway uh, because many people ask for them. Where, what they're afraid of is getting rid of the bacon and sausage and hot dogs. Um, this, too, we are going to win, but... Um, we got to push them a little bit on that. Yeah, you know, I worked at the hospital when I was in Colorado, a little, little hospital, Rifle Colorado, Grand River Health, and uh, we did that for 30 days. We did strictly plant-based for employees, and, um, you know, I always wrote for when I admit someone for, you know, chest pain rule out, am I? They got a plant-based diet. I didn't yeah. even actually give them a choice. I said, listen, this is what you have to have while you're here. This is part of your diet. Absolutely. And, you know, what you did is such a great thing for other people to know. Um, you, you, you tell the patient, you say, this is what I'm going to do. And, and it doesn't have to be a heart patient. It can be a hip replacement. Mm-hmm. You know, you say to the patient, your hip replacement isn't going to kill you, but your diet could. So while you're here, here's what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the f- foods that I'm going to order for you. This is what you're going to have. And some of them might be a little bit new, but give it a try. What, are you with me? Mm-hmm. Every single patient will say, okay, all right, I'll give it a try. And they know, they know that you care. Mm-hmm. If they refuse, if they say no, fine, they're still your patient. You still love them up and care for them. But when you endorse it, and then you let the dietary know too, say, this is what I want my patient to do. And you, you bring the dietitians in. Patients get this, they, and, and they love the fact that you thought of them, mm-hmm. that, 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 you, that you thought enough of their willpower that they could do this and succeed. Right. I always spend up to an hour at a time with each patient, um, even if you're in a busy service. I mean, just because it's so important that they understand the power of the foods. And I was like, I have a captive audience. <laughs> you can't leave. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, I got to tell you, though, we don't spend that much time here. Um, I, here's, here's what we do. My do- Every doctor tells me, you know, I need more time. I say, no, you don't. The patient comes in. Okay, you got type 2 diabetes. Your A1C is 11 and a half. This is bad, you know, and then, uh, all right, I'll keep you on your medications for now, but we're going to make a diet change. You got to explain the diet. That takes you about two minutes. Mm-hmm. Here's why. Then we have our dietitian. Okay, here's Karen. Karen's a dietitian. Uh, we're part of a team, and Karen's going to take it from here. She sits down with the patient for an hour. You've gone to the next patient. Mm-hmm. When Karen is done, she's made a menu for them, and she says, we have classes on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday here in our mm-hmm. office. Can you come? They're all free. I want you to bring your wife. Is that okay? Uh, yeah. And they come, and they're like a, like a kid at the edge of a swimming pool. Uh, is the water cold? Do I want to jump in? I don't know. As soon as they jump in, the water is fine. Mm-hmm. And so the doctor with the dietitian 
with the classes already scheduled, the doctor's life is like really easy because mm-hmm. you've got a structure there to support you. If you don't have that, it's like needing x-rays and them telling you you got to do them all yourself. Like, no way. Mm-hmm. Or you got to do all the labs yourself. So no, our, our doctors, it's very fast, very quick. But um, they, they, their, their job is to endorse it. Right. Say, this is going to relate to your issue. Here's why. And they give just enough of the science that the patient gets it. And then the dietitians, you know, if they're all believers, they all know that it works. They know the, the literature. Mm-hmm. They're great. And the patients succeed. And that may be part of the issue. Like when I first started using plant-based nutrition in 2012 with patients, I got pushback from their, our registered dietitian. And they're like, people are coming to me. I don't understand. Why are you doing this? Plant-based diet stuff. I mean, they eventually came around. But it was a fight. It was a battle. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, all right. I feel your pain, yes. <laughs> I'm sure you do for many more years than I've had it. But what do you do to bring a team in? Like, so if you... You're a doctor and you're like, okay, I know this is what I want to do. How would you recommend them bringing in someone? Like how, or even a colleague, if you're talking to another colleague, how should we broach that subject? Because I know I've done many different ways. I've used patient examples, my own story. Um, some are successful and some are not. Um, I know some of the times the doctors feel like, well, they're never going to change. I'm like, but yes, they will. Um, what do you do? What, what kind of, how do you initiate that conversation? Or would you suggest someone doing that? Well, you know, there's all different issues. Here, here I run the clinic, so I don't hire smokers. I don't hire people who eat meat. You know, I just don't hire those people because they are going to sabotage you. Um, and, and even though 98% of people are following unhealthy diets, I don't hire those people. Mm-hmm. They're not going to work here. Um, the good news is I have no shortage of people who want to do this work because there are a lot of people who are going in this direction. So I've got the world's greatest dietitians and doctors and uh, medical assistants and teachers and everybody. It's, it's really great. So you got to have a good team. But, but, you know, there are people who sort of don't get it. And if it's a, a position where I can just order them, you know, this is the diet. You know, I don't care if you like the diet or not. I don't care if you're gluten-free, for example. You know, you may not, you, you, gluten may not be an issue for you, but you have to believe me and you have to reinforce my message. So that's what they got to do. If it's a person who really sabotages you or whatever, you got to have a sit down. Um, and have them read certain things and let them understand what the treatment is about. Um, most of the treatments that we give in medicine are not things that apply to your caregivers. You don't need your legs set. You don't need thyroid medication, but you have to understand why the doctor is prescribing it. Mm-hmm. You cannot fight the doctor on it. You know, you got to be supportive and don't create seeds of doubt. The problem we have with food is that everybody's got opinions on that. Um, and so we educate people, um, uh, we show movies, we show films. I pump people up as much as I can. And I have to say, I do find that people do get it. Um, mm-hmm. It's not that super hard. Um, and I give lots of talks at medical conferences and, and people want to come along. They want to try things. Hmm. That's encouraging. So you have the Bernard Medical Center. Are you mm-hmm. planning on expanding outside yes. of D.C.? Yes. Um, Not yet, but but yes. Um, uh, Not yet. And the reason not yet is um, I want to find out exactly what the right size of it is. We're going to probably double where we are now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just want to make sure that what we have is the right mix of types of practitioners and types of outreach and um, the right model. But then, then, yeah, um, we would love to have more of them. I, I am being begged constantly to start a clinic in LA and here and there and the other place. And, um, 
or it, the other piece of it is we're happy to advise other clinics on what we do and how they can do it in their own lives. But we're, we're sorting out a lot of these, these things as we go. Wow. Like the business model, how to actually code, how to bill. So are you accepting yeah. insurance? Yeah, we, yes, we do. And, um, we, we accept all insurances uh, that we can. And I think there's, I think we participate with virtually all of them here in DC where we are. Um, we do not have a concierge model. Um, but some people may want to go that route. Um, and we're not yet doing shared medical visits, but that's something that we are going to explore. And I'm bringing, and for our conference, we have um, a lecturer who's going to give kind of the ABCs on the shared medical, uh, shared medical visit thing because I have discovered patients love, I, I thought they'd be intimidated by this. They love being in a group where instead of talking to you for 12 minutes or 15 minutes, they're going to be there for an hour and a half if they want to, sharing all their issues and, sh- and kind of sharing the doctor's time. Um, so the fact that they, a, a lot of patients really like it and financially it's a very good thing for practice too. So we're going to explore it. And see that's, it. Wow. That's a great idea. Cause I get a lot of the questions. Um, I've had a lot of doctors reach out to me and, and actually it's really, I've noticed it's an uptick as far as doctors who are burnout with regular practice, you know, they're not getting paid. Sorry about the thunder. It's really loud right now. Um, the, uh, you know, they're just administrative burden. They have to see this many patients and they have to have these metrics made and their patients have to do this, this and that. And they're just, they get to where they don't even want to practice medicine anymore. So I think this is a great model yeah. to actually, you heal people. It's fun. And as long as they can make a living doing it, why not? And uh, it's fascinating. They do. And um, th- those are all the issues. I-, I talk to doctors all the time who are kind of burned out from seeing patients, one patient after another, after another, after another, after another. And I think, you know, I have to say one other issue is um, I personally think this doctors make too much money. And I think the pharmaceuticals make too much money. I'm talking about your average practitioner. And here's, here's the reason I say this is, is I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about me, but I'm talking about there a number of people who say, I would love to be in a preventive nutrition practice. I was talking with a cardiologist elsewhere who is making $550,000 a year. And he said, you know, I'd like to be joining your practice, but I'd say, you know, I couldn't make that, that same kind of income here, so I don't want to do it. And I thought, wait, 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 why did you go to medical school in the first place? Um, did you go to medical school just to be rich and to have the new Lexus every couple of years? Um, remember, remember what it is, because otherwise what you're doing is you're selling your entire productive life. Um, and don't do that. Mm-hmm. So if I could make a, a wave a magic wand, I would go to a single-payer system I would have the government negotiate down the cost of these things so that doctors are paid fairly, but not crazy, so that drugs are affordable, so that your medical education is not insanely costly, mm-hmm. um, and try to rein in some of these things that are hurting our practice so that a doctor can do what they want to do and what the patient wants them to do without feeling like you're suddenly sacrificing all the money that you were going to bilk patients for by doing procedures that they shouldn't be having. So anyway, that's the magic wand I want to wave. In the meanwhile, um, until I get that magic wand, what we have is a good primary care practice where our doctors are paid exactly the market rate and they're happy. And our patients, uh, you know, we accept what the insurance pays and we prescribe drugs just like any other one when we need them. And our classes are completely free. Um, the dietitians get paid. Insurance is surprisingly good for the dietitians. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a good sustainable model. Wow. And I love how you you really took your time to build it right. And um, just 
scaling up as you see the need and the benefit and you're able to run it. I think that's fabulous. It's wonderful. So as far as, so you have, let's say these young medical students that are starting medical school, like my daughter, for example, and their school maybe doesn't offer something like this. What would you suggest someone like that do to bring this type of message or education into their school while they're still there, not in 10 years, but do you have any suggestions for those students like that? Yes, I do. Um, the first thing is stay in school. Don't drop out. Don't get discouraged. Don't say these lunkheads here don't appreciate the final research. I, I get it. But school is short. Med school is four years. Your residency is three years, four years, five years, whatever it is. You are going to get through it. So be good. Study hard and be the best darn doctor you can. You're good. You don't think you're going to need all these biochemical details. They'll come in handy. Pay attention. So that's number one. Number two, um, do get wise about nutrition along the way. And it's not rocket science. Read my books. Read Dean Ornish's books. You know, read books by people who have written on this. Join the Physicians Committee. Come to our conference. And somewhere in the first or second year of medical school, call us up and say, I want a speaker to come to my school. And here's what I'm going to do at your medical school. I'm going to buy Indian lunch for everybody. So we're going to have rice and curries and samosas and all these things. And we're going to have a sign saying free nutrition lecture for all medical students with lunch. And they're all going to pack in the room and I'm going to give them a talk and I'm going to pump everybody up or we're going to show a movie like Forks Over Knives. And then suddenly you've got more and more allies and we'll do it again the next year. And then we give everyone a free copy of our nutrition guide for clinicians, which has about 90 conditions and it's got the nutritional interventions, which by the way is going to handheld later this year. So it's searchable. Um, and we're just going to make people get excited about it. So yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you, that book is fabulous, by the way, because when I first transitioned uh, to my plant-based diet, and I was trying to figure out how to learn to do this in a regular practice, because I was like literally the only one in West- Western Colorado <laughs> that I knew of, um, it, was, it was very, very helpful. So I would encourage everyone to reach out to PCRM and get that. That was Oh, thank exciting. you. We got the third edition is coming out soon, and it'll be in print, but also electronic. That is wonderful because everyone, I mean, all kids are going to have that now. It's just yep. amazing. Cool. So now just to kind of get more on your personal side, because I know you have a really kind of a neat story um, with your family history and your how you grew up. So tell us your transition because you, I mean, you grew up on a ranch, right? And how, or farm or something, a dairy, I can't remember exactly. And how did you transition to this diet? Yeah, uh, I was, uh, I, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota. And uh, my father grew up in a cattle ranch. And uh, to his credit, my father did not like the cattle business. His father was a rancher and his father, as far back as I can trace, my dad did not like it at all. And he left uh, the cattle business and he went to medical school and came back. And so um, my dad became the diabetes expert for Fargo and uh, pretty much all of North Dakota and Western Minnesota. Um, But I got to tell you, I never heard him say that anybody ever got better. Mm. Uh, It was all kind of, slowing the complications. Um, but I had a normal, normal childhood, um, eating roast beef, baked potatoes and corn every day. Um, and then when I went to medical school, uh, here at George Washington university, when I got out, um, after my residency, I was working in New York and I just started to feel like we don't do anything to prevent, to prevent a heart attack until it comes in the emergency room door. We don't do anything to prevent the cancer until it shows up on the mammogram. I thought, Come on now, let's. There's got to be a point of intervention before that. Let's let's deal with that. And also, I have to tell you, I was also bugged about um, 
ethical issues, particularly in research. And it hit me one day when we were supposed to do our dog lab uh, in medical school, uh, where you take a dog, you put the tape the dog on the table, give the dog various drugs and write down what the drugs do. Epinephrine increases the heart rate, propranolol slows the heart rate. And I just said, I am not doing that. He said, oh, this is part of your education. I said, give, excuse me, you didn't bring me here because I'm having trouble learning. You know, I don't need a dog to demonstrate what epinephrine does. I'll tell you what it does. And I refused to participate. And, um, and we ended up getting rid of that thing. And I got rid of all the animal labs from every medical school in all of North America. Um, because I, I want doctors to respect life in various forms that it comes in, including animals. So I set up the Physicians Committee in 1985 to bring prevention into medicine, and especially means nutrition, but also to fight some of these ethical issues that may not have been popular at the time, but our job is to make them popular. So that's what we do. We've got about 12,000 doctors who belong, and I've got about 150,000 non-physicians, but they may be nurses, psychologists, or the lay public. Mm. There's our, uh, our goals. And um, it's interesting to see how things are moving. Yeah, that's amazing. So... Now back on to this one other side of you that's very intriguing is your musical talent. <laughs> so tell, <laughs> so yeah. you have, you have, um, you play the guitar and you have, you have a, a song, right? Tell us about the song that's on the charts. This yeah, is- yeah, it's true. When, it, when I was six years old, my parents got the idea that any civilized person <laughs> had to play at least two instruments. And so I was sort of chained to my piano and my cello, and this is what we did. And, and so you had drummed into you. And all the way through medical school and residency, I had bands. Because it, it, for me at that point, it was guitar. Anyway, so I've released three records. Um, and the most recent one is called Carbon Works, as in we are made of carbon and these are our works. Um, but um, I didn't I don't set out to, to I, I set out to have music that I really like. And I have to say, I think it's really good. And, and my musicians are great, great, great really, people. But um, radio stations picked up on one song that's called Louder Than Words. And if you go onto YouTube and search Carbon Works and you look for this song, Louder Than Words, you'll see it. Um, Somebody emailed me last week and they said, are you aware this has been on the chart for three months? It's now number 13 on the adult contemporary (laughs) radio chart. So whatever that means. Um, It's funny. it's, It's above Miley Cyrus and Lady Gaga and... And, you know, everybody's like with Atlantic Records and CBS Records and whatever. And here I am, this unsigned band called Carbon Works with this song. So people, people, the radio, the radio just jockeys seem to like it. So, so are you, do you have record companies like knocking on your door saying, hey, we want to sign you guys up? I'll tell you what I do have. I have a group of musicians I adore. Um, I don't know if you, you know, do you know the Coen Brothers uh, filmmakers? Okay. They, they had a movie with George Clooney a few years ago called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And in that movie, George Clooney breaks out of prison and he meets this guitar player named Chris Thomas King at a crossroads. He's sold his soul to the devil. And now he's the world's greatest guitar player and they, they spend the rest of the movie together. Well, Chris is in my band and he is the world's greatest guitar player, except for me. Um, and I have, uh, I have a, the world's greatest singer. Her name is Naif, N-A-I-F. And she's Italian and she's from the Alps, the, the Italian Alps. And I was listening to uh, a European radio station one morning i was jogging in sacramento and i heard this angelic voice and i found her and i emailed her and i said you have to come to the united states and she did and she's recorded with me and she's made videos and, and you'll see her if you go to youtube you'll see knife and just great and i've got uh jazz players and i, I even have there's 16 of us i have two traditional vietnamese musicians who play old style vietnamese music because 
it's the most amazing thing. You, you bring in, you know how when you're making a dish in the kitchen, you bring in different spices, a little ginger, a little pepper, a little salt. If you make your music and it's only salt, never any pepper, lousy. You got to do various kinds of seasoning. And so that's what Carbon Works is all about. So I, I, I hope you like it. Check it out. We're on YouTube, we're on Pandora, we're on Spotify, and the band is Carbon Works. And there's a bunch of songs. See what you think. I'm totally going to put the links for everybody, especially for okay. the Louder Than Words. That is, oh, I'm going to be on this. It's going to be all over my social media tonight, <laughs> so I can't wait. Oh, wow. Well, is there any last um, bit of advice or suggestions or thoughts that you would have for an audience? Because I have, you know, a lot of plant-friendly people listen, but there's also other people who listen. You know, I have doctors refer their patients to listen to the podcast. Do you have any suggestions for anyone who might be considering this lifestyle that might be a little hesitant so far? Yes, I, I have two suggestions. The first I mentioned already, take a week to try out healthy foods and then take three weeks and really put it to work. Um, and then the second thing is once you discover that food is really helpful for you. The, this, the most important thing is to share that with other people because the people who need your message the most are not on this podcast. They haven't heard of it. They don't, they don't know about it. They might be 16 years old and they're in school or they might be at work and, and they know that their health is not where it needs to be. So the way to do that is make noise. Share around recipes, share around websites like yours, your podcast, share books, share uh, DVDs of programs. Um, food products that you find that help make life easier. Share this stuff around. People love it. So instead of it being a finger-wagging, guilt-inducing process, you're shopping. You're sharing fun things. And when you do that, um, you know, I'll send things. Here's a new veggie burger I found that I think is healthier than the one you're trying now. Or here's a recipe that blew me away. Uh, with social media, you can share things so wonderfully. So if we make noise... Um, you're going to, you're never going to know all the lives you're going to save, but you're going to save lives. Yeah. And I think honestly, when, um, patients do this, they become so enamored with the message. You're absolutely right. They become your best spokespeople because they're just, they have to share it. And that's exactly what I've seen. They, they feel the urgency and you're absolutely right. Absolutely. So I like to end the podcast with acknowledgement and, um, to say thank you, because I think people who do this type of work, that sometimes it's a very thankless job and, um, people understand, for example, you had a huge part in my education and my moving forward and encouragement. And you've been a tremendous resource for me. I could just email you and you've been fabulous. I was like, I, I, I just want to thank you, but I want to thank you to all the patients that you've helped through the clinic, through your work, your, I mean, it's just, I can't even think of the millions of people that you probably reached. And, uh, so I say thank you for them and all the ones in the future and, uh, keep up the good work. And we're so thankful for you. Well, thank you for saying that. And right back at <laughs> we're a team trying to make some noise and share some useful information for people who need it. So I'm glad cool. that we're doing that together. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. 